I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It is Thursday, ladies and gentlemen, which means it's time for the Front 3 Q&A podcast. And it's a Front 2, in fact, this week. Myself, Adam Boltwood, here alongside the man, the myth, the legend himself, Chris Hennage. Chris, how you doing? Bad. How just, are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm very good. You're just back in, uh, in Blighty, mate. How was uh, your trip to the States? It's good. Very good. Um, didn't really do a lot of football work, but yeah, it was, it was nice to recharge. No exciting news, no exciting gossip for the uh, for the whole. No, MLS is uh, MLS is still in its preseason. Mm. It was just about starting as I arrived, so there's there's nothing I've not gone through yet. I would say. <laughs> well, there's plenty of notes to talk about in the world of football. Um, been a, it's been a little while, guys. Um, the front three, the front five, the five guys from the front three have been very busy. Unfortunately, so uh, yeah, this is a long overdue podcast from us. Uh, if you haven't seen already, myself and Lawrence McKenna. Uh, have launched a new YouTube channel, a new project in association with True Geordie, Will and E. Stephen Tries called EXO. Do go and check it out on YouTube, on Twitter, on Instagram, all the social medias. Um, but yeah, that's the uh, that's what's been making the, that's what's been keeping us very busy uh, in recent weeks, unfortunately. Um, but we are here now, myself and Chris, to talk about the beautiful world of football to answer your questions, to cue your A's. You've been sending them in on Twitter all day. Before that, though. It is time for Hold of the Week, as always on a Thursday. Um, a couple of reviews to choose from, but I've already pre-selected our Hold of the Week. This week it is Ayajib uh, from Australia, uh, a five-star review on iTunes. Ayajib, thank you very much. Uh, he says, this is one of the best football podcasts out there with an amazing cast. Boltwood's humble and balanced approach McKenna's witty and cunning views, Dave's stats and his nerdy ways, Hennage's wisdom and knowledge, and I love Nico as well. Until he talks about Man City or United, in which case he sounds completely biased. Love you guys. Keep it up. P.S. This is my first review ever, so excuse me if it sounds bad. I actually, it doesn't sound bad at all. It's fantastic. Thank you so much for the kind words, apart from the Nico is biased bit, but you know. It is what it is. Uh, you are the whole of the week. Do get in touch on Twitter, slide into those DMs, either at the front for your at Adam Butwood to claim those beautiful Ferrero Rocher. Uh, without further ado, should we get into the questions, Chris? I think we should. Um, first up, let's see if we can find a good question to start with. Uh, Saucy Statman 
says Loslam or statism? Uh, wow, this is uh, this is a tough question. Uh, if if you don't know what this is, guys, there is a there's a small community, I'd say, of fans, followers on Twitter of uh, mainly of Lawrence McKenna. Um, and I don't blame people for for following Lawrence; he's a wonderful man. Um, but they've created a sort of a pseudo religion. Is it right to call it that? Called Loslam. Um, they sometimes call themselves an Islamic state. Uh, they're very committed. Wow. They're very committed. <laughs> they're very dedicated. But in response, there's been a rival sort of movement set up called Statism, uh, in almost opposition to Loslam. I mean, there is Boltism as well. There's, there's Henegism. What would you call your religion, Chris? Henegism. Uh, Chrisism. Is there Hinduism? Hinduism. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. That's pretty good. All the Hinduists out there. Come on, guys! Start the Twitter account. Start the movement um, right now. Are you a Loslim or are you a statist, Chris? Are, are you sort of multi? Are you sort of multi-faith, as it were. Uh, I preach tolerance at all all opportunities. Yes. That's what I tried to say. So I did have a uh, a kid uh, who set up an account called Brilliant Boltwood, I think, or or Boltwood the Beast or something like that. Who said you simply know? Simply Boltwood. Yeah, simply Boltwood. It's about. To- I tried to send him. Listen. I, I, I'm not buying into any of this. I, I don't understand what's going on. But if, if Boltism was a thing, it's all about tolerance, you know? Let's not have Loslims Loz or Statisms or whatever. Let's just all, you know, be mates, basically. Um, so, yeah, that's the weird world of Twitter for you. Luke Dorr, on a related note, says, How does Adam, Dave and Lawrence in particular feel about all the cold like fan accounts that have been made about them? Tempted to make a hashtag henhouse account. So forget... Hinduism, headhouse is that a, a better term? I think Hinduism is pretty good. Funny enough, there there was a place in uh, in Brooklyn that um, it was a chicken shop called the Henhouse, but unfortunately it closed. Um, <laughs> oh, so you couldn't you you couldn't go to the Henhouse yourself? Yeah, so I, I took that as a subtle suggestion that the popularity for the Henhouse is not what I hoped it would be. Um, so. <laughs> I, w- I will take a, a subtle message from the universe on that one. But if, you know, uh, we talked about there, but if there was a uh, some main tenets of Hinduism, what would be your uh, the main foundations of that belief system, Chris, based on your deity, as it were? When you can use a number 10, use a number 10. Mm-hmm. Um, well said. Pass, pass, pass again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and... Uh, Always trust Rafa. Yeah, it's been, it's been written, guys. Um, the 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 don't deity. kill, don't steal, don't yeah, all those. <laughs> obviously, you know they're they're obvious ones. The, you know the deity is spoken, guys. Uh, Luke Dor, I highly encourage you to uh, to make a hen Hinduism account. Uh, moving swiftly on, uh, Mahadeer Mukundi uh, on Twitter says, "Is Serie A a more competitive league than the Liga and the Bundesliga?" Um, if you look at the tables, Chris, you'd probably say yes, I think, this season. Um, yes, I, th- I think I'm loath to say more than La Liga because I think the Bundesliga, yes, you are really struggling to see a, a genuine competitor to buy me, especially this season. RB Leipzig haven't been as good. Dortmund have had their, their issues. Um, whereas La Liga... I think you could see Real Madrid or Barcelona winning. Obviously, Real Madrid are miles away this season. Um, 
but usually there there's one or two and obviously Chuck Atletico in there as well. So it's it's not been a what I would consider a dynasty situation. Whereas the Bundesliga, definitely. Serie A up until this season, presuming that Napoli go on and actually win the thing, it's kind of been dominated by Juventus. So I think I think really the the way you have to look at the the competitiveness of the league, especially in relation to the Bundesliga, to, to Serie A less so with La Liga, is what happens to the teams below the uh, most consistent winner. So look at how often teams like uh, RB Leipzig, for example, are able to to launch an assault on the top four um, when Bayern Munich do win the league. Because I think you look at, say, the Premier League, for example, there's about six, maybe seven in a push that will realistically always finish in those positions, you just swap them around year on year. So you would say, well, that's a super competitive league. Not necessarily, because then that leaves 14 teams, three of which will go down, um, or 13, 14 teams, excuse me, three of which will go down, and then the rest will just exist. And you may always have this outlier of a Leicester City, but that has been such a rare commodity. I don't think that will ever happen again, because it relied on the fact that those predestined teams that we talked about all had awful seasons so I think there's a few different ways to look at the competitiveness of uh, European top European leagues so I'm, I'm like I say I'm a bit loath to, to say that one is more than the other because I think they've all got different variations of, of competitiveness uh, Chris uh, last night in the first leg in Seville Manchester United drew nil-nil with Sevilla um, a somewhat disappointing Performance, I think it's fair to say there was quite a uh, quite a reaction to this game, um, to the way that Mourinho and the way Manchester United approached it. Uh, uninspiring, I think it's, it's, it's not unfair to say. But uh, Sanji Singhacha writes in to say, after a huge improvement in the quality of the games in his first season, have Mourinho and Manchester United gone backwards this season despite a better league position? And if, say, would you say it has worked? Um, it does bring up this idea, um, I think it was James Ducker from the Times, um, a very well-respected journalist, wrote himself on Twitter after the game last night that there is this feeling of almost inertia about Manchester United that if they haven't gone forwards, then if they haven't gone quite backwards, then they're sort of stalling right now. They're treading water. That was, it wasn't a performance that particularly, it wasn't one to excite Manchester United fans, was it, Chris? No, I don't think it was. It was very much as Dave predicted in our group chat that it would be either a 3-3 or quite a boring uh, 1-0. Granted, there wasn't that single goal. I, I just... I'm not entirely sure what Mourinho was trying to achieve in so much as I know the result that he wants. But I think if you look statistically, there was a, a graph posted today that less and less a, a 0-0 result like that in the first leg is proving less influential than it once did. Um, well, you, and, open, and, uh, you open yourself up, surely, to... I mean, it's not a terrible result, but you open yourself up to that possibility of that sucker punch in the uh, the home leg. Exactly, which, you know, you go back to Mourinho's poor at Manchester United, that was pretty much what they did to, to Man United. Um, they provided that sucker punch. So it's surprising that he still views the, the best possible outcome as that. I mean... Well, obviously, I would imagine he'd want a 3-0 if he could. But he, he deems that as acceptable is perhaps a better way to frame it. Hmm. And, and my issue was watching Man United last night. I just wasn't sure what that team itself was trying to do. I appreciate that, you know, Pogba for Herrera 
was a bit of an awkward change. But I look at McTominay, who I think has some potential. There's clearly a little flicker or something there. I almost get a, a Darren Fletcher type um, vibe when I watch him play. But the problem I have is I'm not sure what his role is. I'm not sure what he's being told to do mm. because if he was told to, to sort of suppress Eva Benega, he did a really terrible job of that because oh he was he was great he was sensational he created ten chances during the game I think the last time something like that happened was was Ozil for for Real Madrid um, against Spurs in 2011 and he just had the bossing of the game Benega and but for better finishing by Sevilla and some inspired goalkeeping by uh, Mr De Gea I think Man United could have really lost this one mm. and unfortunately that's the theme that's developing is that it's De Gea that's that's proven the saviour for Manchester United so often. Of course, it was a fantastic save made by De Gea on the uh, on the stroke of half time. <laughs> Did sort of uh, it would have changed the narrative. I think it's fair to say if that goal had gone in, Sevilla for me were the better team. But as I said, nil nil isn't a bad result. Mark Cullen writes in with sort of the uh, the opposing point of view. With the reaction to the Manchester United result, has the world lost all patience? Says Mark. There have been so many overreactions to the result. It's as if United lost three nil. It feels like sensationalism has taken over the footballing world completely. Cheers, love the pod. Hashtag great podcast. Thank you, Mark. Um, I mean, do you think there is an overreaction there? I mean, obviously Nico and Dave aren't here, so you won't get that biased point of view. You're with the the, the most reasonable members of the front three right now, but I do have a little bit of sympathy for this in that. Of course, the reaction and the the, the vibe around this result is coloured by uh, uh, the context of Manchester United and this idea, this narrative of Mourinho and how he sets up this team. And they aren't the most entertaining team to watch. I think that is a fact. But at the same time, it's not it's not a terrible result. Is there an overreaction? Do you think, Chris? I think to a certain degree, yeah, there's an emotional overreaction because I think now more than ever, football fans, especially fans at that top end. They do want to be entertained. You look at the way City play. You look at what Liverpool produce. There's a desire not just to see the ball go in the net, but see it go in in a way that is visually appealing. I I understand that to a certain extent. You know, someone that is forced to watch quite dour football at times with with Newcastle. But you know, you you always caveat that with the fact that at least we're you know occasionally winning and stuff like that. I think what colours the Manchester United picture slightly is the sheer scope of how much they've spent. Now, granted, not all of that is Mourinho's doing. A lot of that was under Van Hall, and it was naively done because I think, ultimately, Manchester United did not plan the transition out from, from Sir Alex Ferguson well. And I think what happened is, somewhat similar to what I think could happen or could have happened at Arsenal before they installed these two uh, chaps recently, Sven Mislanta and, and the, the Spanish fella, who I do need to learn the name of, Um is that Ferguson became so ubiquitous and so good at delegation that once you removed that figurehead, you had a lot of people that I think almost crumbled under that lack of support. And it's very hard, name possible, I would say, to install a manager who is that figurehead anymore. For me, Wenger is the last example of that. And so you look at all the money Van Hal wasted, you look at money that... Moyes wasted on the likes of Fellaini for 28 million. And then Mourinho comes in and tries to do something quite different to what Van Gaal wanted to do. And he and he looks to buy instant results because he doesn't have time to nurture something because I think he knows he doesn't have a long lifespan at clubs. And equally, it's Man United. You have to win quickly. So he goes for instant gratification. He goes for Matic, who he knows. 
uh, he signs Pogba because Pogba's, I would argue, at that point, the best young midfielder in Europe, if not the world. And it, it means that you don't have time to refine the process and smooth things out. So whereas, you know, he could have said, OK, I'll actually I'll go for Naby Keir or I'll go for Virgil van Dijk for the centre-back. He doesn't have the time. He's constantly having to make a decision in the moment. And it makes long-term planning so difficult. And I think that was something that Ferguson was able to, to do a bit better. Mm, I think as well what does reflect badly upon that result for Manchester United is the performances of other English teams in Europe so far. Uh, in this round of 16, obviously, Chelsea, I think it's fair to say, were the better team in that draw with Barcelona. Um, obviously, Spurs go to Juventus. Yes, they went two down, but they battled back and were the far better team, I'd argue, uh, over the 90 minutes uh, and away from home against what the five-time Serie A champions put in a, a performance they could be proud of. Manchester City go to Basel and win 4-0. Liverpool go to Porto and win 5-0. Yes, that's a different calibre of opponent, I think, to Sevilla, but there is that lack of ambition. There's that lack of... Uh, there's that lack of cutting edge, I think, that Manchester United have got. And as you say, it's unclear what Mourinho was trying to do last night in order to win that game. Yes, they were defensively reasonably solid, although David De Gea had to bail them out once again. But um, yeah, I don't think the performances of the other team, in comparison, reflect well upon Manchester United. I mean, you mentioned Paul Pogba there as well, Chris. What do you make of this entire situation? Obviously, Pogba entered the game reasonably early last night, thanks to the injury to Ander Herrera. But there was this whole issue again where he was dropped by Mourinho. There does seem to be a, an aspect that maybe Mourinho doesn't trust Pogba anymore in these sorts of games. That maybe he doesn't know how to get the best out of Pogba, which would be what many Manchester United fans maybe would suggest. Yeah, I, I think he's backed himself into a corner a little bit. Um, I said as much on Twitter. I think that. Um, if he doesn't know how to get the best out of him, I'm kind of surprised because Mourinho is not adverse to um, three-man midfields. And I don't think he's adverse to having one isolated creator in a team, which I think if you look at, again, his time at Juventus for me is so important because it's essentially the best form of his career thus far. I don't think he's recreated that consistency with France or Man United since. And to me... I look at the balance of that midfield. You had a runner in Arturo Vidal. You had someone who could be that metronome in uh, Andrea Pirlo. And that allowed Pogba the space to sit on that left of the three and just create and just float and be this sort of ubiquitous presence in the final third. Whereas putting him deeper, I think, yeah, OK, it might round his game out, certainly. It might make him more defensively sound. But I don't know if that's necessarily what you buy Pogba for. I feel like you buy Pogba for this sort of rangy, creative player. I don't think he's going to be a Patrick Vieira. And I get the sense with Mourinho just a little bit that that's kind of what he wants him to be, this dominator who goes box to box. Now, in fairness, Pogba's talked about being box to box. I think he said himself that his best position is box to box. I don't see that personally. I don't, I don't think he's got the discipline for it. I don't think he's... Um, defensively strong in, in tackling or what have you to do that kind of thing um, and so maybe that's you know what what's trying to be done here is, is to send him a message to spark something in him the problem is you paid 89 million for him which granted it's not a huge sum anymore thanks to PSG but it's still a club record transfer so you have to include him and I think leaving him out for a, a big game like that it just it 
it sends a message that there's a problem there and the stories that come in the keep as well it, it it helps to feed into a very negative narrative that i don't think is being stoked by the media necessarily is it mismanagement on Mourinho's part because uh, it feels like if Popper was in another team under another manager, they would do what it takes to maximise his effect in order to get the best out of him. I mean, the easy comparison, of course, would be Pep Guardiola. If you saw Popper in that side, you understand how that would maybe work, how Guardiola would, uh, would maximise his impact. It feels like Mourinho is the issue. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It does. It certainly does. And I think it's the the Guardiola comparison is the most obvious um, because of what he's done with Kevin De Bruyne, because of the way that he's refined Raheem Sterling and got him, I think he's already on like 20 goals or something this season, Raheem Sterling. Um, he's definitely having his best season in front of goal, I know that. And the, the other concerning thing is this pattern of behaviour is eerily reminiscent of his most recent spell at Chelsea, where in that season, he did sort of isolate and marginalise Hazard, who is undoubtedly Chelsea's best player. And there's, there's part of me thinks the timing of this is interesting as well, because he's just signed that new contract. So in theory, he's never going to be more powerful at Manchester United than he is right now. And this is when he seems to to pit himself against Pogba a little bit, whether being overt and admitting it or, or playing it down, what have you. There's there's clearly a certain degree of power struggle. And I think in the modern game, because of the investment in a player, not just transfer fee, but salary, signing on fees, all these fees that we don't really consider until we yeah. play FM, it means he's only going to lose. Hmm. He has to do more, I think, to integrate Pogba and to... Um... To make that investment worthwhile. Um, a question here from Ellis Parry-Jones on the Champions League, on the English side. Are Liverpool dark horses for the Champions League? Uh, Ellis thinks their quick counter-attacks will catch most European teams out. Of course, I mentioned their 5-0 at Porto. Uh, an absolutely spectacular result. Uh, do you think Liverpool could be dark horses for the uh, for the trophy? Definitely, 100%. Um, as the, the, the question I mentioned, though, a fantastic attack. I think the defence is, is getting better. It's not where it needs to be, but it's getting better because, um, more than anything, uh, Virgil van Dijk is a calming presence. He doesn't uh, he doesn't allow for uncertainty to creep in or ambiguity. And I think there was an instance against Porto where 
there could have been a potential mix-up between him and Karius, but instead he just headed it away. That's the kind of thing where Lovren loses composure, loses cool, and before you know it, he's either getting booked or sent off, or there's a goal conceded because of a mistake. And I think for me, that's that for me is almost the most the, the more important um, aspect to track with Liverpool now is that yeah, they went to Porto and they scored five against the Porto team that conceded ten in the group stages and has only conceded ten goals all season domestically. So they are no mugs, Paul. And, and Liverpool pretty much destroyed them. So I think, yeah, Dark Horse is a great shout, given that um, they're not one of the favourites in, in my eyes. Mm. You would uh, you would make them favourites to go through to the next round, though, uh, considering they're 5-0 up and there's a five-away goal. Uh, on those other English sides in the Champions League so far, what do we make of the chances of Chelsea? Obviously, on Tuesday, a one-all draw with Barcelona. Um, as I said before, they were the better team. William hitting the post twice before converting in the in the second half. Lionel Messi, though, getting that equaliser just 10 minutes later. His first goal in nine Champions League games against the Blues. And a vital away goal, it has to be said, for, um, for Barcelona. Uh, I think Barcelona now the favourites to go through. They take that tie to the Camp Nou. A team of their quality. Do they have enough to get past Chelsea, or do you do you back Antonio Conte's side to uh, to spring a surprise? Chris? I am in agreement with Frank Lampard. I think the game at Stamford Bridge felt like what might have been. I think if they, because the thing is, what they did with with Barcelona for such long periods is they restricted them and they made them really formulaic in the way that they played, and I think they showed why. Uh, a team like Barcelona needs Coutinho. Why, actually, despite being good in the league or, or in a good position, they, they strike me as being a little bit prone to, to one-dimensional play because it just so many times it fell to Messi and you saw such static movement in front of him um, because they don't have someone like Neymar who can glide past people, because Suarez is getting older. And the same of Iniesta, as brilliant as he was, he is also 34, which is, is not... It's not a, a good age to be in, in his position. Um, and I think if they'd had that 1-0 result, they'd then go to the new Camp with, in theory, the same game plan. Just restrict them. Restrict them, watch them get frustrated, watch themselves open up, and then uh, strike on them. Because you, you have to remember, William had two great chances before that. And and if they go in in the new Camp, in theory, you've, you've absolutely killed the tie before half-time. Um, with this one realistically, Chelsea have to do the opposite of what they did. They have to come out and score because Barcelona can just sit on that 1-0, uh, the 1-1 result, excuse me, and go through away goals. So I'm not confident of them going through personally as it stands right now. Hmm. What about the mighty Tottenham Hotspur though, Chris? Uh, went to Juventus, uh, were 2-0 down in side what, nine minutes last week? Uh, managed to pull it back with a fantastic performance. Uh, Moussa Dembele, Christian Eriksen, of course, the, the players singled out for praise. Um, with those two away goals, would you favour them to uh, to go through to the quarterfinals? Now the time's back at Wembley. Yes, I actually feel a lot more confident about Spurs. Hey, that's I good. assume you do as well. I feel relatively confident. I think the one caveat is, you know, Spurs were dominant in that game. Uh, Moussa Dembele in midfield was uh, was a dominating presence. They were missing, however, Juventus, Blaise Matuidi um, and Paolo Dybala, of course, two hugely influential players who look like they're going to be fit for that return leg in March. So that does give me a little 
sort of cause for concern. But I think, you know, the way Spurs have played at Wembley this season has been sensational. I think we've only lost one game, which was that opener, unfortunately, against Chelsea uh, in the Premier League. In the Champions League, we've beaten Real Madrid, we've beaten Dortmund at home, um, and we've been fantastic. So... I'm feeling very confident going into this one. I'm looking forward to going watch to to watch the game. I feel like Spurs have, have hit a, a rich vein of form in recent weeks um, since Christmas, really. So yeah, I'm, I'm feeling very good going into this game. I feel like we are going to make it through to the quarterfinals, but there is just that there's that hint of danger with Dybala coming back. He obviously adds an extra dimension to that attack that I think they were missing. But at the same time, we were relatively fortunate in that first leg. I think we have to uh, appreciate. Higuain missed a golden chance. Um, not only the penalty, which he smashed across the bar in uh, in the in their final minutes of that first half, but also that fantastic chance where Juventus hit Spurs on the counter. Maybe he should have converted. Maybe he shouldn't have. But these these things, these issues, sort of made me worry a little bit. But I'm feeling confident. I'm feeling good. I think Spurs are going to go through. Chelsea, perhaps not. But I think every other English side is going to make it through into the next round of the competition. Um, let's move on to some more questions then. Uh, we've got one here from ooh, Piotr Gala, long-time listener, long-time friend of the show. He says, can you please discuss Michi Batshuayi's impact and contribution to Dortmund? He's been absolutely phenomenal. In my opinion, offers much more to the team in terms of hold-up play and link-up play than Alabama Yang ever did should Dortmund do everything to keep him? What are your thoughts? Uh, Piotr, obviously, a uh, Dortmund fan. Um, it has been a fantastic start by Bashuai for Dortmund. Um, mm. I mean, does it look foolish almost for, for Chelsea to have given him up to to farm him out to, to Dortmund in this January window? Could they have done with keeping him, maybe, Chris? Uh, no, because I think one of the things he's benefiting from at Dortmund is regular playtime. Um, starting games, most importantly, it, it's it's different. There's no other way to to build it. I've spoken to enough players that say 15, 20 minutes at the end is is not the same as a starting a competitive run of games. Even if you're getting that 15, 20 minutes every week, because it's it's not allowing you to build momentum or continuity or what have you. Um, and I think Piotr is absolutely spot on. I've, I've watched a few of the recent Dortmund games. Um, I think one of them was. Stuttgart possibly, um, but I think yeah, it was his. Uh, well, it may not have been Stuttgart, but it was his debut. I remember watching that one specifically, and and did notice the fact that uh, his his older play was was not only good, but it was really beneficial to to Dortmund and the way they wanted to play. There was instances during injury time where he got essentially the ball punted up to him. He spun and just kept it and won a free kick. And it's it's things like that that I think make him not necessarily a better player, but a good fit for this Dortmund team. Because the thing about Aubameyang was he only scored goals in the penalty box, which can be seen as a criticism, but I also think it's an indication of the type of team that Dortmund are and the type of striker that they need. And I think you put Michi Bacuay in the penalty box, he'll score goals, no problem. I don't think he's a, a world-class finisher, but I think he's good enough to put away the kind of chances they're creating for him, which are sort of pullbacks from out wide, um, balls into the box, this kind of thing. The the only problem, I think, from a Dortmund perspective is there's no chance they can buy him because Chelsea ruled out a purchase option from minute one. Um, so I think actually in, in the long run, uh, Chelsea have done the right thing. They've loaned him out to, to help him develop 
and improve, which I think he did have to do. He would, it would be pure revisionism to say that he, he was deserving of, of regular first-team football at Chelsea because he was, for me, a little bit of a flat-track bully at times. He padded his stats with, with goals that didn't always mean things. Again, I know he scored the goal against West Brom that won them the title. Um, but I think, yeah, the the key thing for Chelsea is is actually using him next season. If you're going to bring him, if you're going to give him this six months, you've then got to look at him next season and say, okay, he, he either plays or him and Murata both get the chance to fight for that first team spot. And yeah. I think that's the difficulty is that Murata costs double the price. So you're you're essentially uh, essentially benching a, a £60 million player. Mm. Five goals in four games for, for Bashway so far for Dortmund. Uh, impressive return. And he's only 24, so as you're sort of alluding to there, plenty of potential if he does indeed return to uh, to Chelsea to fulfil that. Uh, moving on, Waldo says, which player, not from your club, have you enjoyed watching the most this season? Um, great question, Waldo. Um, ooh, it's a good one. I think in the Premier League, we're looking at the likes of Kevin De Bruyne, uh, who are you going to say? <laughs> so you're going to say John Joe Shelby? <laughs> yeah, not John Joe Shelby. Uh, only that one game against Manchester United. Uh, it's got to be Kevin De Bruyne. That, that range of passing, uh, the way he splits open the defence is, is incredible at times. Um, I'm trying to think of other players in the Premier Obviously, that attacking trio, that front free grip podcast, as it were, for Liverpool. It'd be very exciting to watch the time. Salah, I mean, even that goal he scored against Spurs, the, the, what we thought was surely the winner in those dying minutes was just sensational. So Salah for me, De Bruyne in the Premier League, um, anyone who's sort of taken your eye in that sense, Chris? Uh, Christian Eriksen. Um, I like it. Yeah, I the like two it. you mentioned, definitely. But yeah, Christian Eriksen, just because I love how intelligent he is. Um, because he's not, I, I don't think he's a world-class athlete. I don't think he's blisteringly quick or nope. strong, but I think he's a great reminder that um, brains can often be brawn in football. Um, so, yeah, I would say him. First half of the season, I quite enjoyed Richarlison uh, and, and little sporadic bits of Will Hughes. I'm trying to think of anyone else that really sort of... Oh, Mario Lamina of Southampton. Every oh. time I've watched him, I thought, I wish we had him. He looks um, good. A little... I don't know. I don't want to say little end product, but it feels like his final ball. It feels like his decision-making at the crucial moment is lacking slightly. He looks skillful. He looks fast. He looks talented, but just not quite what you'd hope he would be. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing is, or the, the, the thing to remember with him is, 15, because 15 million from Juventus, in this current market, I think that's a really good deal. I actually <laughs> think he'd be really good for Spurs. Um, but uh, yeah I think someone like him he's not just a bulldozer he's got some real quality in his feet and I don't think he's started a ton for Southampton I think he's had a period where he's on the bench and I think the fact he's not played more and and even if that team goes down I don't think it'll be down to him I think it'll be because they don't score enough goals Um, so yeah in terms of I mean just to take on to players that I watch uh, regularly Moose Dembele is one of the players I've really enjoyed watching especially in recent weeks that mm. spell um, you know where we played Arsenal Manchester United Liverpool Juventus in a row I didn't think he was going to play all those games for a start not only that he started them all he dominated them all in my opinion um, 
But he's a player I enjoy watching tremendously. I think he's incredibly talented. He's got the technical skill. The way he the way he bosses a midfield is, is so impressive. But we were talking about this a few weeks ago with Dave. You know, I kind of wanted to say to Dave, we can't criticise Dembele for what he's not. We have to appreciate him for what he is. Dave, I think correctly in a sense, highlighted that maybe Dembele slows down Spurs play in an attacking sense when he receives the ball. Um, could he be doing more in order to initiate those those forward moves? What do you make of Dembele, Chris? Because he's obviously a player who's garnered a lot of praise, a lot of uh, highlighting in recent weeks. He's been seen as this sort of dominating midfielder who can who can control a game. But do you think that there are those weaknesses to his game? Do you think we should maybe just appreciate him for what he is and not criticise him for what he isn't? Yeah, definitely. Um, funny thing with him is, I first time I saw him, he was playing for RZ um, against Newcastle in the UEFA Cup, and he was playing as a number ten. Um, and he did, yeah, he was good. He was quick. He could glide past people with ease. So to watch him then transform into this whole conquering midfield has been really kind of weird. Um, and I've been debating trying to do a piece on it and, and work out who instigated that. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion it was Marn Yol, um, if not Mark Hughes, which, I mean, either way, that's a great <laughs> surprise to many. Um, but yeah, I think the thing with him is it, it, it it's almost like Ericsson um, in so much as I think he does something in the game that not many players can do. And any time you have that kind of situation, that earns you a premium on a player. And for me, he, along with Ericsson, are two massively important pieces of the, the Tottenham future. They are indeed. Which brings us on to Tim Eels saying, which one player would you not swap for anyone else in the world at your club? Um, he's talking there about players who vital to the future. For me, it's, it's obvious. It's Harry Kane. I think Harry Kane is the one player who isn't expendable at Spurs. We have to keep him at all costs. It's obvious for me. It's obvious for Spurs. What about for you, Chris? Uh, Jamal Lasalle's. That good, is he? He's the club Cap- captain, right? Captain, leader, legend in, in that order. Captain, um, yeah, leader, he is. legend. He's, he's grown massively under Rafa, first and foremost. Um, English centre-back, which you know uh, are rarities in terms of quality ones, more specifically. Um, and yeah, just got to look at the numbers. We have such a better record when he plays comparative to when he doesn't. Um, our season has been broken up into nine-game stretches, nine games with him, almost nine games without him, and then nine games since he came back. And if we'd had him through that nine-game stretch using the basic sums, we'd have about 15 more points and so we'd be pretty much safe by now. Um and so, yeah, he's, he's very much a huge player for us in our future. And I await one of the top six buying him in the summer mm. and, and trying to find a replacement. Liverpool, no doubt. Um, here's a good question from Liam Smith, who says, is a modern-day manager's job now more about getting their players to work hard and play for them rather than tactics? It just seems managers get blamed first when the players aren't giving 100% and no system will work without maximum effort. P.S. Love the pod. Thank you for the kind words, Liam. Um, I think I have to disagree with that. I, don't, I would say the modern day manager's job is now more about tactics than ever. I think when you see someone like Jose Mourinho, when you see the criticism he comes in for, the scrutiny he's under, he's famously a manager who, although is defensively organised, doesn't work on the transitions, on the phase of play, on the the, the systems up front. He, he relies on the 
the flair and the ability of his attacking players in order to to create goals. Whereas managers like Conte, like Guardiola, like Pochettino, they have very specific ideas, have very specific tactical uh, systems in mind in order to to maximise their their team's attacking verve, as it were. So surely tactics now are more important than ever in order to, to get the best out of your team, Chris. Uh, yes, definitely. I think at the same time, though, I, the, the questioner makes a very good point about uh, managers getting the blame. And I thought it was interesting. I think it was uh, the True Jewelry podcast with Kieran Dyer this week where Dyer talked about the need to be uh, a good man manager and good at you know dealing with people. Because I think the, it's one thing to tell you know Adam Boltwood to sit in front of the defence and and just scream. It's a different thing to actually get him to do that and stick towards that. Maybe if you go a goal behind or something like that. Um, it's about having not just the respect, but I think the trust and the loyalty of the players. And that comes from your interactions. And I think that's the that can often be the key difference is that when managers lose the dressing room, that's inevitably why they lose their job, I think. Yeah, it, it, I think being a film manager is an incredibly challenging job, and as you sort of saying, there are so many facets to it. Not only is there the sort of the tactical, sort of tactical, I should say, granular level of it, uh, and the actual systems on the pitch, but as you say, it's the man management. There's so many aspects and so many angles in order to be an effective football manager and to 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 be the best that you can be. I've got so much respect and, and admiration for the like of Guardiola, Pochettino, Mourinho. The success they've had is, is nothing short of incredible. When as you say, it's so demanding and there's so many pressures and so many factors that you have to consider when trying to get the best out of uh, the resources in front of you. Um, final few questions then. As we finish up here, uh, we've got a question here from John who says, after Manchester City, who is going to win the league next? Um, could very well be Manchester City next season, um, but who's going to be the next team that's not Manchester City to win that title, Chris. Um, could it be Spurs? Is it going to be Mourinho at Manchester United? Is it going to be Klopp at Liverpool? Who do you think is the most likely team to uh, to succeed Manchester City as champions? I'd say Liverpool. Um, really? Not Spurs? We, I think we've discussed this before. I worry about Spurs' ability to sign uh, elite-level players. We just signed Lucas Moura, mate. 25 million. Pace, power, he's got it all. He's elite. That's the thing. I think upwards of t- when you start spending upwards of thirty million, I think the wheels fall off the Spurs a bit. I don't think they <laughs> are able to to sign good players like that. Like I say, Ericsson, great, but you signed Ericsson for ten million from Ajax. He hadn't achieved his potential yet. You made him a great player. Yeah, he's when it comes to like signing, player. you know, ready-made great players. I don't see Spurs necessarily doing that. I think um, it is that there is a balance to it, but I think there is that necessity to, as you say, buy elite players. And at the moment, um, although Spurs, I think, have done an incredible job and as I always say, the punch above their weight, there comes a time when the likes of Liverpool, the likes of Arsenal, the likes of Manchester City, the likes of Manchester United, less so perhaps Chelsea now, but you have to appreciate their their power, their spending power in terms of the transfer fees, in terms of the wages. Liverpool have gone and spent 75 million 
on Virgil van Dijk in January. They've just brought in Naby Keita as well, who's obviously joining in the summer for, what, 50, 60 million, I think they've brought him for. Um, these, are, these are huge fees that they're splashing and that the Spurs can't match. Frankly, it does feel like right now Spurs are in a phase where we've got this incredible team we've assembled. There is that window, it feels like, with that team of three or four years of which we're in that, that second or third year, as it were, in order to win the title with this current set of players. But Spurs are building for the future. They're building that stadium. Um, they're building those foundations in order to guarantee success in the future. But as you as you rightly say, at the moment, it feels like Spurs are, are not quite able to compete and and maybe add, maybe supplement to their current team with those elite players that maybe would take them to that next level and take them beyond third, fourth place to a, a champion. Um, so they're in an interesting position, I think, Spurs, but maybe it's, it's beyond them right now. To uh, to go to that next level, uh, yeah. yeah. Liverpool, maybe as we say, you can go and spend a, a world record fee on a defender in January. You can go and add one of the best midfielders, one of the most promising midfielders in the world in Naby Keita. I think they're in a very very good position next season to uh, to be competing for that title. Yeah. Um, Plus, there's talk of them signing Allison, which I think is yeah. important. Unbelievable. Uh, final question: There may have to be from the real life Gaston. Uh, if that's true, then wow, incredible. Uh, if you're in your individual opinion, what is the biggest problem with football in the United States? And how would you change the league structure oh, wow. and youth systems to increase quality across the leagues and national team? Um, I think there can be no argument. I am the best placed person to answer this question, but I'm going to be magnanimous. I'm going to pass it over to you, Chris. I think you might be able to give an interesting opinion, maybe. Ah, oh, what a gent. Um, wow. Biggest problem. Um... For a long time, I thought the biggest problem was a lack of self-confidence uh, in, in, in itself. I feel like American soccer is, is too often defined by an inferiority complex. And there's a belief that, that Europe is Mecca and, and will always be Mecca. I, I think, yeah, quality is better, definitely. Um, it doesn't mean that it's uh, an unassailable level, though, um, or even that you know, everyone that, that stays in MLS for their entire career is, is not good enough to play in Europe. I think there are enough examples of, that contradict that. How you fix the youth system? I, I, I got pelters for having opinions on this once from a very popular commentator in the US um, who described me as someone writing articles in his parents' bedroom. Um, but I think that inclusivity... Very unfair. Um, I know I do it in the guest room. Um, inclusivity <laughs> of... Um, the different ethnicities, I think, and, and um, social levels. So, you know, the fact that I think personally, from what I've seen, it's very expensive to play football in the US as a youngster. Um, we grew up in a situation where I think it was about two, three pounds for a game on a Sunday. Um, I pay five pounds a week. Um, to do it. So you have free pitches if you want to go and play on Pier 40 in New York, for example, which is great. But when it comes to actually playing club soccer and being trained and stuff, it's horribly expensive. Um, same with joining a development academy and things like that. And and a lot of people just don't have that money. It's as simple as that. It's it's great if you're going to put all your eggs in that basket and, and try and be a professional. Then it can be seen as an investment. But if it's a hobby, that's a different story. And the problem is, is you can be a fantastic player, but you may not know that you're good enough. It takes almost an outside party to identify that. And so I think the cost of, of 
football has to be footed more by the federation, less by the individual, because I think that's stopping so many good young players getting into the system. Um, and and I would say at the same time, the same applies to coaches. A lot of coaches are dissuaded because of the cost of, of USSF licenses that, that don't represent value for money, which again, obviously has impacts because you're not having the best coaches coaching the best kids. And, and that's, um, that's a shame, I think. Um, it's not, I've seen people say that there's a problem with the style of play and how you include all the different ethnicities in that regard. I think that's a very naive take. I think what you have to do is you have to give more opportunities to those from uh, low-income housing, which, again, you can also have a number of uh, immigrants who maybe don't have documents who can't get into the system. So there are a lot of challenges like that, but I don't think the issue is, is for example, style of play relative to the national team. It does need an identity, but that won't stop inclusivity, I think. And on that note, that is the end of the Front Free Thursday Q&A podcast, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your questions as well. Um, we had a great time. Chris, have you enjoyed yourself? Loved it. Loved it. Uh, guys, I hope you loved this Front 2 podcast. Um, we're going to be back on Monday. We're going to be back with a weekend review. Big weekend coming up. We've got the League Cup final, of course, between Arsenal Manchester City. We've got Mourinho v Conte, Chelsea v Manchester United, which could be a huge game in the race for the top four. So we'll be back on Monday to analyse it all. But until then, Chris, where can the whole, where can the good people find you? At KH. At KH. Guys, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood, maybe. Go and follow me on Instagram. Uh, apparently, that's a new up-and-coming platform with the kids. Uh, it's at Adam Boltwood there as well. Um, but even if you don't, I'll forgive you because you are part of the whole. You are one of the front of your listeners. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We'll see you on Monday. Until then, enjoy the weekend's Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 